Father, I thank you that you've called us together in the name of your Son to worship you through the study of the Word of God. Father, as we remember the worship of ancient Israel, we know how the proclamation of the Word was central to all that they did. Father, I pray that your Word will be literally made indelible on our hearts, that we will live by the Word of God, that it will be the breath of our lives, that it will be our strength and our shield. And Father, I pray that you will just enable us thereby to serve you in an effective way in all those callings that you've brought into our various lives, that we might reflect Jesus at home, at work, at school, at play, wherever we may be, that we will remember that we belong to you, and the word will instruct our thoughts and our feet and our actions and our words, that in every way your name will be exalted. Be present with us here this morning, I pray. Illumine our minds through your word and help us to understand what is being said that is for us today. And Father, wherever the word is being taught this morning in the various classes and in the service uh, that is uh, concurrent with this, that you will be power powerfully present. Lord, bless each life according to each need this morning. We do trust you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll turn to the 31st chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 31. Let me read the first eight verses. So Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to come and go. And the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross this Jordan. It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you, just as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them just as he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will deliver them up before you, and you shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous. For you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall give it to them as an inheritance. And the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. It is interesting as we look at this particular passage that we discover that there are three reasons given here as to why Moses will not be going into the promised land at the head of his people. I mean, for 40 years he's been leading them. And now when it finally comes to that last step, Moses will not be their leader. He gives, first of all, the reason that he is 120 years of age. Some excuse, right? <laughs> now, that was unusual. Even though his brother and his sister lived to be a little bit older than that, it was still unusual. There's absolutely no evidence that this was the common thing. In fact, you know that, you remember, that the word of the Lord was to Israel that all of those 20 years of age and older who had failed to go into the promised land, which was everybody except, of course, Joshua and Caleb, they would all die in the wilderness. 
So, so that meant, of course, that those who were 20 at the time died before they were 60, or by the time they were 60. So uh, this was an unusual age, even at that particular time. It seems likely that God preserved this family specifically beyond the normal lifespan, not only because of their exemplary faithfulness to God, but because of the purpose to which God had called them, the role that he had given to them in the leadership of Israel. As weak as they were, as failing as they were, and you remember how, how Miriam failed and how Aaron failed and even Moses himself, and, and yet the call of God was upon them and he empowered them to live this length of time. I mean, Moses had to live quite a while because God didn't even call him until he was 80. Secondly, we discover that Moses was no longer to lead Israel into battle as he used to. This was, of course, due to his declining strength. What we will discover in later passages is that Moses, we're told, was still strong in eye, strong in ear, basically strong in body. And, and what that, of course, meant was he was unusually healthy for being 120, but he was no longer and he no longer had the physical vigor to lead them in a military campaign, and that would, of course, be understandable. Thirdly, though, and by far the most significant reason that Moses would no longer lead Israel was that God's discipline was upon him for the sin that had been committed at Meribah. Above everything else, God wanted the people to know, he wanted the people to understand that God does not tolerate any attempt to usurp his authority, to take his place. That, that is why men and women die, perish, and go into eternal destruction, because they have chosen to usurp God's place in their lives and put themselves in that place. You, you may have read the article that was in the newspaper a couple of days ago where this man uh, recently just died and, and Somebody had asked him before, why was he using methamphetamines? And he said, why not? That was his answer, you know, why not? Well, if you don't have the Lord, why not? You know, there's no one else. You're the God of your own life. Do what you want. Those who put someone else in God's place suffer the consequences, which are eternal. And God wanted Israel to understand that. God, God had forgiven Moses. Moses was forgiven. God was not holding a grudge against Moses. But for the sake of Joshua and for the sake of the others who would be leaders of Israel in subsequent ages, the consequences of Moses' attempt to usurp God's position were inescapable. It's sort of like you and I today can, can do something which is wrong and God will forgive us, but that doesn't mean that we won't suffer consequences from what we have done. You know, God might forgive me if I, in a burst of anger, take off in my car, drive the wrong way on the freeway at 100 miles an hour, have a head on a collision, kill myself. You know, he may forgive me for my folly, but I still pay the consequences, and maybe someone else does too. Just in case the people were frightened at the thought of losing their strong and godly leader. I mean, many had grown up, and all they had known was Moses as their leader. Moses reminded them that the real leader was God. Your real leader is God. And, and this is the most important point that needs to be driven home to every believer, that God is the one in which we must put our ultimate trust. God will go before them, and He will give them victory in the promised land. Human leaders come and go. Only God is always there. 
Only God displays infinite wisdom and almighty power. No matter how godly a human being may seem, and, and you may know people that seem to you to be very godly, that person can and will fail. Only God himself cannot fail. That's one of his attributes. God never fails. You and I will fail. This is the story of the Bible. Read the story of Adam and Eve, perfect in the Garden of Eden. No sin nature. And yet what? They fail. And you, and you pass on through the course of history, you come to another garden, a garden called Gethsemane. And there you find disciples who fail in the midst of Jesus' agony. This is the story of, of the human race. Humans will fail. No matter how close to God a person may walk, he or she will fail. God never fails. That's one of the reasons why it's very important that we do not become totally dependent on a person or even a group of persons. It's very important for us to have spiritual mentors. Maybe someone that you can associate with often or, or somebody who is the author of books that you love to read or some way we need to have spiritual mentors. But we must never place our faith in those spiritual mentors. Our faith must be in God because our mentors will fail. And you and I know that. You probably have books in your library where you thought were wonderfully wit written and you've discovered since the time the book was written that author has fallen in some awful way. And, and, and we understand that God is the only one who never fails. Our, our mentors are not to be there to be our guide or our hope. They are lead us to God who is our guide and is our hope. And that's what Moses is trying to get across to these people. Yes, I have been your leader. I'm going to be gone now. I'm transferring the mantle here to Joshua. Joshua is not perfect either. He's, he's going to fail. He's already failed at times in the past. But God never fails. Trust in him. Walk with him. He will be with you. We must look beyond frail human beings to, as Paul said to Timothy, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Moses is a very encouraging person here, and he encourages the people by reminding them of what God has recently done for them. He says, as you face Canaan, remember what God has just done. He has de delivered you from the mighty armies of Sin and Og, the kings of the Amorite, people who had armies greater than yours, people who had understanding of warfare when you were just a bunch of, of uh, desert bunnies and you didn't know anything about warfare, and yet God delivered these armies and delivered these lands to you. God will do the same as you invade Canaan. As you move into the promised land, God will be with you as he was in Transjordan. Then as God gave them the victory, their response was to be to do all that God commanded through Moses and all that was written in this book. That Moses was right at this moment in the process of completing. He is ending the, the, the uh, account of Deuteronomy and now the, the Pentateuch is complete. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are there. They aren't known by that, but this, the, the law, the Torah, as the Hebrews say, the Torah, as we call it, uh, is, is complete. Moses then exhorted Joshua and the people with these wonderful words. I, I hope they stood out to you as, as I read them. Let me read them again from verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail, nor 
forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and he said to him in the sight of all Israel, can you, can you see the picture? Pulling Joshua up alongside him and standing him there in the front of the whole congregation of Israel, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's you shall. And the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. This was a powerful promise to Joshua and to all the Israelites. Shortly after his resurrection, Jesus made a promise that rings somewhat the same way. You all know it well. I'll just turn to it quickly at the end of Matthew. We often call it the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says to his disciples, And through them to us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. A cardinal principle of the Christian walk is that Christ is always personally with his people. Wherever they go, whatever they do, he is with them. Jesus assures us of that in this passage where he says, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. It's an unlimited promise. The word always there, translated in this particular translation, is literally every day without exception. Lord doesn't say, Lo, I'm with you on Sundays, but you're on your own Monday through Saturday. Or he doesn't say, I'm with you every other day. He says, Lo, I'm with you always. And, and the statement is written in such a way as to imply without exception. And the word for age there is, is not a word that means until you guys are dead or at the end of the apostolic age or, you know, through the first part of the church age or something like that. The, the, the word here is the Greek ion, which means a period of indefinite duration. It is sometimes translated as eternal. Thus, Jesus is making a categorical, inviolable promise to all those who are his true disciples. And of course, Jesus made many comments that are recorded in the Gospels as to what constituted a true disciple. He said, you are my friends, my disciples, if you do what I say. So those who walk in obedience and faith to him, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. There will never be a time, there will never be a place in which I am not personally with you to empower you in that hour. This includes us. This was not a statement just made to, you know, the 11 disciples there. They were on the top of a mountain in Galilee when Jesus made this promise. It wasn't just to them. It was to them and through them to all of us. 1970 years later, this promise is as true for you and for me as it was for those 11 on that mountaintop. And of course, you might be as frightened about living in this age as they were living in their age. It was a very difficult time in which they lived. Rome was the conquering power of, of the Mediterranean world at that time, and Rome was not a Christian power. <laughs> you know, 
Sometimes we get really up upset about the fact that our government acts in some pagan ways. Well, what's new, you know? When Christianity was founded, they worshipped a whole pantheon full of gods and they worshipped the emperor. And if you weren't willing to bow down to the emperor, that constituted a, a statement of treason against the government because worshipping the genius of the emperor was considered the same as pledge allegiance to the flag is today. And so, looking at it from the human point of view, those 11 guys standing on top of that mountain, they had a big task ahead of them, and it was impossible, utterly impossible. But Jesus said, I am with you always. And I think the implication was, I'm with you just as I am with you now. I will be with you. It'll be in spirit, but I'll be as really there as I am with you right this moment on the top of this mountain. So I think that we can look at this promise in Deuteronomy 31 where he says to Joshua and to Israel, be strong and courageous and don't be afraid or tremble because I'm going to be with you and I'm going to go before you. I think we can take that and apply it to ourselves just as really as we can take the Matthew 28 passage. Because there are other New Testament passages that imply that this is so. Let me read from Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, re reading at verse 5. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. And considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith, Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday and today, yes, and forever. This is a very, very important passage to see how all of this links together. The book of Hebrews, as you well know, here is a book that focuses on Jesus as the perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament types. And so, as the writer here in Hebrews 13, verse 5, quotes from Deuteronomy 31.6, that's what he is saying there, when he says, he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. He is quoting from Deuteronomy 31.6. And he is saying, he himself, Hebrews is written about whom? Jesus Christ. He himself has said. So, what is he saying here? He is implying the co-equality of Jesus Christ and Yahweh. That's what he is saying. And therefore, he is making these Deuteronomy words, these words spoken by Yahweh by, through Moses to the people, I am with you always, he is making those words to be the words of Jesus Christ. Although it will be 1,400 years before Jesus Christ is incarnate in Judea. And yet he is saying, those are the words of Jesus Christ, which were spoken through the prophet Moses. And then he goes on in the eighth verse to say, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and yes, forever. When we put it all together from this Hebrew passage, I think we are to understand that the promise that was made in Deuteronomy 31 by Yahweh recorded by Moses 3,400 years ago, and the promise that was made by the psalmist, because verse 6 is a quote from Psalm 118, where he says, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? He, he is also saying here 
that the promise recorded by the psalmist probably 3,000 years before this Hebrews passage, that these two passages are applicable to the reader of the Hebrews. That you can take that Deuteronomy passage and that Psalm passage and apply it to yourself just as was meant for Joshua and was meant for whoever read the Psalm 118. By extension, therefore, because they are the words of Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, they apply to us. I mean, it's logic. It follows one step at a time, right through so that you can take these Old Testament passages and bring them down and apply them to our own lives in that sense. In the seventh verse of this same Hebrews passage, we read of continuity. Continuity that exists between the church of today and God's spokesman of past days. There is continuity between Moses and us today. We are, of course, described by Paul as children of Abraham. There's continuity throughout the scripture. So many want to take the Bible apart and they say the Old Testament is not important to us because it was written for people who lived a long time ago. It's the Old Covenant has nothing to do with us today. We live under the New Testament and so many, many people study the New Testament. They totally forget the Old Testament and, and that is bad hermeneutics, very bad hermeneutics. In fact, I don't know if you get Christianity today, but they have the list of all the uh, what they uh, are awarding as the books of the year. And of course, Billy Graham's biography is at the top, and then there's 25, 24 other books that are given awards for being the best books of, of this year in the Christian circle. And in the comments about it, the writer says what you discover here is a lack of any books dealing with the Old Testament. And he says, he, he's implying that that is a serious weakness, a serious weakness. You and I are living in an age when people like to just deal with issues that have to do with how I can be a better mom, how I can be a better pop. That's good. That's important. But we need to know the issues of the greater issues of the theology of the church. Now, many people think that theology is something that people in, you know, in ivory towers just argue about and it has nothing to do with real life. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. We need to know the basic theology of the church. Because if we don't know it, we have no basis from which to talk to people of other faiths about what it means to know Jesus Christ or what it means to be a Christian. I mean, there are people of other religions who know the theology of Christianity better than many Christians do. And, and when, the, when we're told that we need to study the Scripture, we're told we need to study the, the writings of the prophets and, and the histories as well as, of course, the writings of the New Testament writers. I mean, what was the Bible Jesus had anyway? What was the Bible Jesus taught from? It was the Old Testament. It wasn't the New Testament. He didn't even have one yet. But the New Testament is in the Old. As I've said before, you cannot find a single New Testament principle that is not in the Old Testament also. The theology is there, and it's consistent. It's continuous. There is continuity. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are told in Hebrews 13, 7, to imitate their faith. Whose? These people he's quoting. Moses and the psalmist. Imitate their faith. Walk in their way. Know God as they knew God. The men who spoke the word of God as recorded in Deuteronomy 31 and the psalmist who spoke the word of God as 
recorded in Psalm 118. Why? Because it is the same God who inspired both men and who inspired Peter and who inspired Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. The same God. All this to say, I think, that when we feel that the task is too big or that the enemy is too strong, we can rightfully turn to Deuteronomy chapter 31 and we can read, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you and he will not fail nor will he forsake. You don't have to do it on your own. In fact, if you're doing it on your own, you might as well give it up now. And that's why there are so many failures out there in the, quote, Christian ministry. Because they've lost their moorings. And they're trying to do it on their own. They're trying to go forth in charisma. I really feel sorry for people who have this kind of natural magnetic charisma because there's a strong temptation to go in that rather than in the strength of the Lord. When we know we don't have charisma, and when we know we're not wise enough, when we know we're not strong enough, when we know we're not smart enough, then where else can we go but to the Lord? Because it won't be done otherwise. In all we set out to do for the Lord, we're to be strong and courageous and not to fear. Why? Because in this passage, he, we're told, He goes before us as well as with us. So He's already been ahead and prepared the way. Remember when He sent out the 70? And they went out into the villages and they cast out demons and people heard their message. How come? Because the Spirit of God had already been there, prepared the way. That's why prayer is so very important in doing the work of the Lord. If you've studied the history of the major evangelists, for example, if you go back and look at Finney or if you look at Moody and Sunday as well as Graham, you discover they were successful because they had organized prayer that went on before they ministered. People got together and prayed together before the ministry arrived, before the evangelist came, so that the ground was prepared, so that the spiritual warfare was already underway, so the enemy was already in the process of being routed, so that when the word was preached, it fell on fertile ears, fertile ground, ears that heard and eyes that see saw, and, and, and lives were transformed. With promises like this behind us, I think we can confidently say with Paul, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that is the crucial through. <laughs> I can do all things. No, no, no. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If I do it in my own strength, forget it. That's why, to me, so many churches in America are such tragedies. Because what's going on inside those doors is something that's going on in human strength. Because there is no prayer, true prayer. There's no exaltation of God. There's no preaching of the Word. There's just some kind of a political talk given or some kind of a, you know, Norman Vincent Peale approach to, to things. Uh, you know, feel good and, and have a positive thought about everything. Well, have, you know, positive thinking is, is fine. As long as that positive thinking is based on the fact that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we win in the end. But if it's based on the fact that I just want to have a good feeling inside, you know, I'm, I'm really a good person, and being a good person, I should be able to share all my goodness with others. Eh, that's a disaster. Let's read on here, uh, beginning at verse 9 of Deuteronomy 31. So Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, 
and to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he shall choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women and the children, and the alien who is in your town, in order that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law. And their children, who have not known, will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land which you are about to cross this Jordan to possess. Moses is on the doorstep of leaving. He's just about ready to go up that mountain to yonder Nebo for his last view of the promised land, and then he is going to pass to his reward. That being true, he is now going to give possession of the word of God that has been given to him and which he has been faithfully writing low these many years since Mount Sinai. He is going to turn over possession of that law to the priests. The scrolls which he has written of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are now to be passed over to the priests. And they are to keep it with the Ark of the Covenant. And as they keep the Ark, they must keep the scrolls. And it's done in the presence of all the elders so that they are held accountable. Now, there is no statement in this passage to imply that the priest decided we better copy this, but I think uh, it's just hard for me to imagine that receiving this from Moses and knowing that he's passing on and that this is all that's going to be left, it's hard to imagine they didn't sit down and say, whoops, we better make some copies of this because if something happens to one of these, it's gone. And I think right away they began the process which has been going on now for 3,400 years of copying the word and making copies of it and making it available, not of course to the ordinary people, but making, in those days, making copies so that uh, it would be preserved. Moses commanded that the law be read publicly to all of the Israelites during the sabbatical year at the time of the Feast of Booths, which is September, October by our calendar. He makes a reference here to the year of remission of debts. And, and what he's saying there is he's alluding back to the 15th chapter of Deuteronomy, where we're told that in the sabbatical year, all debts owed by Israelis to Israelis were to be forgiven. Debts that had to do with aliens or foreigners were not affected. But any debt that an Israelite el, uh, owed to another Israelite was to be forgiven every seven years. So obviously, what does that mean? You, you keep your contract short. <laughs> but the reason for that, of course, was to try to prevent long-term debt, to try to, to eliminate or at least alleviate the, the possibilities of poverty uh, by, by debt elimination. And everybody would have a chance to start fresh once every seven years. So if you really blew it the previous seven years, you can start over and get your head on straight this time, you know. Uh, that would be, wouldn't that be wonderful today, you know, for, for some? Now, what is, what is important about this is normally, now you may remember this when we studied back of the major feasts, when the major feasts occurred, only the men had to go to the tabernacle and report in for the, for the feast. The women and children were not required to go. Men meaning everybody from bar mitzvah on up, so 12, 13 on up 
had to go. But when you read this passage, what you discover is it doesn't say all the men. It says all Israel, all Israel, men, women, and children were to come to the tabernacle at the time of the Feast of Booze and listen to the word of God read every sabbatical year, every seventh year. The people didn't possess the word of God. They didn't have copies like you and I have. So what did they know what God said? They only knew it as they heard it read. And they wanted to make sure that every seven years the whole congregation had an opportunity to hear the word of the Lord. The children were to be there, which meant that no child could pass from birth to bar mitzvah without having at least once heard the word of the Lord read. God's purpose for this practice is clearly stated there in verse 12 where he says that all the people, that, and, and we're told there, that includes the aliens, <clears throat> the non-Israelites who are living in their midst. And, you know, there have been many references to this in the writings of Moses, which helps us to clearly understand that when Israel left Egypt, there were other peoples with them who were not Israelites. They were often called the rabble. <laughs> but we're told that they're to be there, and the purpose was that they would hear and learn and fear the Lord God and be careful to observe the words of the law. I mean, whenever you read this, you discover there's always that qualifier. It isn't just hearing, it's observing, doing. As James tell us, tells us, and we quote so often, we're not to be hearers of the word only, but doers. Because if we are hearers only, we're just condemning ourselves if we don't become doers. So if they did hear and if they did obey, what happens? The word became a lamp unto their path and they were enabled to live securely in the promised land. Joshua was publicly commissioned by Moses before all Israel. Joshua was becoming the man of the hour. That's part of the reason why as soon as you finish Deuteronomy, you discover the next book is called Joshua. Because Joshua will have to move into the sandals of Moses. And I don't think Joshua did that <clears throat> with any sense of feeling adequate. I mean, how would you like to step, I don't care who you are, how would you like to step into Moses' shoes? I don't think so. In spite of his failings, Moses was a powerful man of God. But Joshua will be God's man of the hour. And what is interesting is the next few verses, which we don't really have time to develop today, but the next few verses tell us of a private commissioning. It was one thing for Joshua to be commissioned before all the people. Now God says, Moses, bring Joshua before me at the tabernacle because I have them some things to say. And what God says there could be viewed as very disheartening. And Joshua could say, you know, we get in land and everybody's going to start doing their own thing and chase after other gods. Oh, no, you know. Joshua could think, I'm going to be a failed leader, and Moses is going to think, all these 40 years I've been pouring into these guys, and now they're going to get in the land, and shortly thereafter they're going to chase after other gods. But, but God goes on, and the next couple of chapters in Deuteronomy are wonderful because God says, this is what's going to happen. But I'm giving you a song, Moses, and I want you to teach these people that song. And when they're in the midst of the sin, that song will come back to them. It will bring them to repentance. This would be an encouraging word for both Moses and Joshua. You see, God is a realist. You know, God doesn't just say all these warm, fuzzy things and not tell us the truth about what's going to happen. 
And so Moses and Joshua will hear that, and we'll, we'll look at that beginning next week.